Well, this morning uh, we are starting part two of our series on outsiders, part two of who knows how many. <laughs> Only God knows how many we'll do on this series. But uh, today we are talking about a different kind of outsider. Last week, who was the outsider that we spoke about? Who were? Adam and Eve. Yes, absolutely. And they were outsiders, as it were, because they declared themselves through their actions in taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They declared themselves, as it were, to be enemies of God. They declared themselves to, to uh, be... <coughs> Excuse me. People who wanted to rule in place of God. They wanted to be able to be in charge of their own lives. <coughs> this morning, we're looking at a different outsider. We are looking at Noah, who is known for being an outsider from the society in which he lived, but not an outsider uh, from God, as it were. In fact, one of the reasons he is considered an outsider from society is because of his relationship with God. So we are going to turn to Genesis six or Genesis chapter six, verses nine and following. Now, I'm going to ask actually if you are able to look at the beginning of chapter six. Um, because that's that's part of the context. So if you're able to pull out your pew Bibles and follow along, starting in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Sorry about that, Jonathan. Um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now, there are some things to unpack here. Now, the story of Noah and, and the flood is a controversial one in a lot of different ways. But we need to remember, as always, that there is a point to this story. And so we will talk briefly about some of the difficulties with this story. Not difficulties as in, ooh, the scriptures might be wrong. But difficulties as in, how do we interpret it and what do we do with some of the truths that are in the scripture record here. Okay? So... First of all, we'll start off uh, with chapter 6, verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose, any of them they chose. Now, we get a pause because this is where the first sort of controversy or, or difficult interpretation comes in. Because that, that phrase, the sons of God, right? When the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, that phrase is a difficult one for us to interpret or understand. Now, the long, long, long history, I mean for thousands of years, for the vast majority of Israel's history, and for uh, at, at least a couple hundred years of Christian history, it was understood that the Hebrew phrase there that is used, sons of God, is actually referring to divine beings. Not, not God's capital G, obviously, but God's as in little God. So this is 
this is interesting. We were talking about this in catechism the other day. In the Old Testament, the, the word Elohim, Elohim is used not only to describe God. It's like with a capital there, Elohim, right? God is Elohim of Elohim, right? He is God of gods. But it is also used to describe other beings, spiritual beings created by God, the divine counsel, uh, those who are angels, we would say. Angels are, are divine, but not in the capital D sort of sense. They are gods, but not in the capital G sort of sense. They're gods, little gods, right? They are divine in that sense. Does that make sense? Honestly, this is a toughie. So if you've got questions, by all means, say, wait a second, that doesn't sound right to me. It's okay. Okay, we're good so far? Okay. So now we have angels in the long tradition. Did you, Sorry, did you have a question? Oh, okay, because it would have been okay. You're allowed to. It's all right. I know. It, I know you don't like to be singled out, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, and you have a question? Oh, you're just waving. Uh, hi, Darcy. Thanks. Uh, now I'm really distracted. <laughs> All right. So now we have these sons of God, these Elohim, these angels looking down on the earth and saying, Oh, wow, those ladies are pretty weird, Right. Like, what do we do with that, right? But that's, that's what the long history of tradition uh, of interpretation says. And, and that word Elohim is only ever in scriptures used to describe spiritual beings like God and or his created angels, divine counsel. Now, uh, around partway through the second century or third century, I don't know, I can't remember, Augustine came along and he said, no, 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 wait a second. This is actually, this is actually human beings, sons of God, who, who, are, who are like, they're in like, the, they're in like the holy people, the people who are um, serving God. They look out and see, um, they see women who are not serving God and they start marrying in between those. It would be like a, you know, um, it would be like a Jewish person marrying a uh, Gentile before the days of Jesus, right? Um, now that was his theory and that one has taken some ground over the centuries since Augustine was around, but still the tradition is focusing mostly on spiritual beings. Now, again, what to do that? We don't know. But it is weird. And immediately, right after this, verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit, my ruach, my breath, my spirit, and this is the same word, ruach, is the same word that is used in the beginning of Genesis when God's Spirit was hovering over the waters before creation, his ruach, his breath, okay? So, uh, my spirit will not contend with Noah or with human beings forever. Excuse me. 
with humans forever, for they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. Now there's a whole bunch of translational difficulties in that sentence alone. Um, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. That word contend, we're not exactly sure what that means. Does it mean like we're not going to put up with human beings forever? Does it mean that we're not going to wrestle with human beings forever? Does it mean that uh, we are um, not going to argue with them? It could mean anything from remain. My spirit will not remain with people to contend to be strong against people, I guess. Nobody really knows for sure what exactly that means. And then when we move on to for they are mortal, we, we struggle a little bit with that too, right? Could it be that, that it is, is one of the reasons that God is not going to put up with people forever that they are mortal? That seems odd, right? Like, is it... Um, like, I'm not going to put up with Kent forever because he's going to die. Well, that seems like a bad reason for me. I mean, it's probably true. I mean, I won't put up with you forever. I, I mean, well, although we may see each other, hopefully, Lord willing, in, in heaven. But uh, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be good, right? But I'm not going to put up with him forever because he's... Like, I'm not going to put up with him forever because his ears don't work. What? Right? Um, I'm not going to put up with him forever because he's annoying. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Sorry. I'm, you're, not re- you're not really. But, right? You, you see, so, so theologians and, and biblical interpreters don't exactly know what is meant there with, I will not contend with them forever for they are mortal. Right? We don't know exactly what that means. Right? Um, but, then, <clears throat> but then God continues, their days will be 120 years. And again, we don't know for sure. A lot of people have argued over time that this is a reference to the shortening of lives that, that, that seems to have started to have happened after, after Noah. Right? That slowly the, the, the lifespan of people is, is shrinking. It's almost, like, it's almost like, you know, in the garden, Adam and Eve were going to live, presumably, hopefully, forever. And then um, after that, their lifespans decreased dramatically because they weren't going to die uh, at all, um, and their lifespans decreased dramatically, but, but the decrease after that seemed to slow down until, you know, today where, you know, if somebody lived to be 120 years old, that would be really something, right? Um, so we don't know whether God is saying that they are mortal and their span is going to be 120 years and that's one of the reasons he's not going to put up with them or whether he's saying something like, I, I'm not their their lifespan is going to decrease. They are mortal, um, but these are sort of side thoughts. These are these are reasons why, as it were, 
God has, this is difficult, God has authority (coughs) to judge people. And part of the evidence for the reason that he has authority to judge people is that he is not mortal. His lifespan is not limited. He is immortal. He has the right as the eternal, immortal God creator of everything to judge people who are mortal, right? (coughs) So that probably just made things a lot muddier for all of you. Sorry about that. Feel free to ask me about that later because that could be a whole nother rabbit trail. Anyways, okay. Now, we move on to verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. These were, they were heroes of old, men of renown. <coughs> Again, a couple of difficulties. Are the Nephilim the, the offspring of these unions between the sons of God and the daughters of men? That is the traditional understanding of who the Nephilim are. The, the, the angels saw the daughters of men. They said they're beautiful. They went down and married them and had relations with them. They had children. And these children were giants, right? Really giant people and heroes, apparently. And, and so then the question is, is that, is that tradition correct? And there's no, there's no ex explicit statement that the Nephilim are the children of the the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. There's no explicit statement that that's true. But then again, if it's not true, then are there just a a third group? We're talking about the sons of God or uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And then there's this third third group, the Nephilim. And if there's a third group, the Nephilim, why are we mentioning them? And, And what do they have to do with the story that's about to unfold? We don't know, right? So there's some complications there as well. But the traditional understanding is that they are um, probably the result of this union between uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And if so, they are the result of a, of, a, of, a, of a union that is unnatural and not approved by God. It's not a good thing because it is found in the context of this increase in the wickedness of the earth, right? And the, the thought is, and here we need to paint a spiritual picture. The Apostle Paul tells us that the battle that we have is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this world. And when Paul is talking about that, he is actually talking about, about fallen angels, Satan and his devils, who are the powers and principalities of this world. When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, not necessarily chronologically at the same time, but in spiritual conjunction, there is this rebellion in heaven where Satan, Lucifer, takes like a third of the angels of heaven and they rebel against God. And so just as Adam and Eve, like in the similar way, in the same way 
as Adam and Eve are trying to set up their own kingdom in opposition to God, so too Satan is trying to set himself up as God and have his own kingdom as well. And Satan and his minions get booted out of heaven just like Adam and Eve get booted out of the Garden of Eden. And Satan and his minions and human beings end up dwelling on the earth. Right? We end up dwelling on the earth. And so the understanding (coughs) in the biblical story is that all the kingdoms of earth are manipulated and ruled over in a very significant dream, a very significant way by these powers and principalities. There is the God, smaller g, of Babylon. There is the God of Russia. There is the God of America. There is the God of Canada. There is the God of London or or or. Toronto or, or whatever. There are gods who are working in concert with the human powers of this world to rule it in spite of and against God. Incidentally, but not, when people talk about systemic racism and systemic injustice, that is what you should hear. You should hear powers and principalities, corrupt human institutions, along with human beings who play party to it often, resulting in racism or other injustices that are built into systems within our world. Right? Just incidentally, it has been true for many, many years that, for example, in Grand Rapids, they had, <clears throat> they had zoned Grand Rapids um, based on where they wanted, <laughs> where they wanted people of color and white people to live. They wanted you know, Latinx and, 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 and African-American people to live in certain neighborhoods. And they wanted white people to live in other neighborhoods. And as a result of that, still to this day, it is recognized that Grand Rapids, Michigan is the most segregated city in all of America. Right? Okay? This is systemic racism which comes about through powers and principalities interacting with human beings to corrupt human institutions and cause difficulty. Okay? Going back to this story, this is what is happening here, is that powers and principalities are corrupting human institutions, in this case, by coming down and breeding with them and using them to set up institutions and so on and so forth that are terrible or to break down the society altogether. Because when we get next, when we get to the next section, verse 5, we read this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It does not get stronger than that in the scriptures, 
right? It, it, we read it and it's, it's familiar to us. And so we can gloss over it a little bit. We can sort of say, oh yeah, yeah, it was bad. No, 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 right? You know, God sends fire from heaven to Sodom and Gomorrah because things are so, so terrible. Like the, the fact that the people, the men of Sodom come out to rape the angel is connected to this Nephilim thing and to the reality of angels and relationships with humans. It is in effect that the Sodomites are trying to exert power over divine beings sent from God. And so they are, they are not only willingly, but totally corrupted in their way of thinking. They want to have unnatural relations with divine beings and claim power and authority over them, just as they want to claim power and authority over everybody who comes into Sodom. And for them, rape, no big deal. This is just something we do. And for them, breaking hospitality laws, which are hugely foundational to their society, no big deal. This is what we do. We will belittle you. We will abase you. We will make you worm on the ground in subservience to us however we can. We will gladly oppress the poor. We will gladly stomp on the rights of anybody. Right? And, and this is... This is what it's like in the time of Noah, except worse and more far widespread. Right? This is why it says, it says it so vehemently. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I mean, you and I, we fall to temptation sometimes, right? But I think it's pretty safe to say that by God's grace, it's not true that every inclination of your heart is towards evil all the time. I think it's very safe to say that by God's grace. And no matter how bad we think North American society may be, it's not there yet. Right? It's not that bad. Right? And so God says, and, and this can help us deal with the flood at all. Right? Because when we think of God as loving and gracious and merciful, right? We think of God as in those terms. And then we think God is going to wipe out every single human being on the known earth. How is that loving and gracious and kind? We've got to remember the context. The context is a corruption beyond anything we've ever seen. The context is so, so terrible and wicked that a guy like Noah, who ends up getting mind-numbingly drunk and being displayed... <laughs> to his sons because of his drunkenness, that guy is blameless and righteous 
on the face of the earth in comparison. Right? So this is, this is all an important part of the context. The Lord, it's so bad that the Lord, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Finally, we get to our scripture passage. But we needed that context. It was important. Because here's Noah as the outsider. And this is the kind of outsider, not that Noah was perfect, but this is the kind of outsider that we should all want to be. Right? While all the thoughts of all the people is wicked all the time, there's Noah. Verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. It's huge. Really, really big. Right? Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, two of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The word of the Lord. Now there are things that are debatable in that passage as well. Right? For 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 many Christians, I would even dare say most Christians throughout history, the understanding of the universal flood was and is that the universal flood means precisely that. It was the whole earth that was covered in water uh, and, and, and that flood was universal to the whole globe, right? There have been lots and lots of Christians as well, however, who say, well, okay, during Moses' day, they didn't know about 
the whole world, as in the globe. They knew basically about the Mediterranean basin and, and, you know, a little bit further out in each direction from there. They knew that and that's it. And that was the whole world. And so at the very least, we can say that that in all likelihood, when when Moses is writing about this, you know, hundreds of years later, and he says the whole world, he at least means the whole known world, right? The whole of the Mediterranean basin and the parts around that that, that are known at the time when Moses is writing this down, right? Now, whether that also means the whole globe as well, I don't know, I wasn't there. I don't know if it really matters, right? Um, Certainly it is true that at the very least in the known world, there was corruption so great that God decided to wipe it all out. And certainly also it is known that there are flood epics uh, from other cultures in the area, right? There's the epic of Gilgamesh and that that talks about a flood as well. Right? Now, interestingly, the Epic of Gilgamesh includes survivors of that flood as well, and it's difficult to determine whether those survivors are the same Noah, just the story has been corrupted through Babylonian lenses, or what. Regardless, it doesn't really matter. The point for us, and the point in scriptures is that Noah is an outsider like we ought to be outsiders. I've said this before about churches. So, let's say that Athens Christian Reformed Church was dying. And it was going to close its doors. And this may feel like hopefully a far off remote scenario for us, but this is happening right now to many, 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 many churches in Canada and throughout North America. I have a friend who says that in United Churches, they're closing like two churches a week or something like that, right? This is not a remote scenario for a lot of people. Let's say Athens Christian Reformed Church is closing. There are a couple of different scenarios. One is Athens Christian Reformed Church is closing and we have not really been all that faithful in pursuing sharing the gospel message with each other and with the world around us. We're like our own insulated little club. We maybe take care of each other, but we don't share the good news with the people outside of our borders. We don't do anything in particular outside of our comfort zone. We only do what, we're, what we've done traditionally, right? Honestly, I'm saying from God's perspective, who cares? Close. You're pretty much useless anyways from God's perspective. Another scenario. We have been trying 
to follow God's leading and do what God calls us to do, to share the gospel with the people around us and with each other. And, and we're doing our very best to do that and be faithful to God. But the circumstances in this world are, are whatever they are, such that people don't care. People are comfortable where they are in Canada. They've got wealthy, good lifestyles. They don't want to hear about faith nutters and Bible thumpers and so on and so forth. And so we are sharing the good news every way we know how and being faithful. And we're going to close. Then I say, praise be to God. It's not great that the church is closing. No. But at least by God's grace, we have been faithful. Right? It's like the martyrs in the gladiator rings of Rome. They stand there and get slaughtered by lions, but at least they've been faithful. And their witness in dying will be great. This is how it ought to be for you and I, too. Right? That, that, that <laughs> you know, we can go out there and we can share the gospel and we can be like loving and Christ-like and, and sharing in, with our hands and with our mouths and with our feet and all the ways we know how, sharing the gospel. And if we die for that, if we die because of that, Oh well, hey, at least we were faithful. Praise God. That's good. That's awesome. Right? Noah, the crazy guy, is sitting there building this huge boat. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. I mean, he hears the, the words of God, but he hasn't seen the actual flooding yet. He's building a boat. Why? God told him to. We're sharing the gospel. Why? God told us to. Is it going to bear fruit? Well, that's kind of God's problem. But yeah, it will. Will it bear fruit as in increasing numbers for Athens Christian Reformed Church? I don't know. Doesn't matter. We're going to build the boat. We're going to share the gospel. Right? Or on the other hand, you know, we, we just, we fit into society. We just keep our faith to ourselves. You know, my faith with Jesus is kind of a personal thing. Yeah, it's personal. But it's not private. Right? It's not personal. I mean, it is personal, but it's not private. You think most... You think Noah was able to hide the construction of this boat? Right? Oh, I put up big walls so nobody can see my boat construction project. I think they'd notice, buddy. Right? This is what God does with outsiders who try to follow God. We don't belong in society in some ways. We're weirdos. We're strange. Why would, you, why would you treat that guy really well? He was just doing terrible things to you. 
Why would you not yell at the guy who smashed into you? Why would you treat them nicely and, 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 and talk with them? And, and, and why would you be nice to your boss who's always treating you like dirt? And why would you, why would you share your deepest, most vulnerable stories with me when I don't know you at all? Because I'm that kind of weirdo. I'm the weirdo that shares his deepest stories because of the love of Jesus and how, how that trumps any shyness or, or weirdness I might feel about sharing my deepest stories. I'm a weirdo in that I'm going to treat the people who smash into me or who I smash into nicely, even if they're yelling at me, if I can swing it, because sometimes I'm not perfect, but I'm going to try to be nice to them, not because I'm trying to manipulate them, not for any, because this is, this is who God is. This is who I am. This is who God is making me to be. So I'm going to be that weirdo. I'm going to be that weirdo who's nice to my boss. Not, not letting him walk all over me, but being nice and gracious and kind anyways. What does God do for Noah, the weirdo, the outsider? Well, first of all, God gives him a huge task of obedience to do, which must have felt awfully risky. I can't imagine it wouldn't have felt risky. And this is what God is going to do for you, right? Two. You, you, C.S. Lewis has said it before, right? And, and I don't remember where exactly, so I'm sorry I can't cite page numbers or, or books or anything. But C.S. Lewis has said basically that often your reward for obedience in a small thing is obedience in bigger things, right? So you're going to listen to God and you're going to say, okay, okay, woo, God is... God is poking me with that little gentle, small voice to say, hey, open the door for that person walking out of the store. Hey, uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you call up your friend so-and-so and say, hey, how are you doing? I was just feeling about, uh, just thinking about you or, or, you know, whatever. And then as you are obedient in those little things, whatever they may be, God is going to call you to do greater and greater things so that your reward for your obedience in the small things is ob- the opportunity to be obedient in bigger things. Right? So that's what God does first, is God gives Noah a huge thing to be obedient in. But then God also, God also rewards Noah with, with salvation. Right? God rewards Noah with salvation. And, and we're talking, yes, salvation in Jesus Christ, because that's how Noah is also saved, even though he didn't know Jesus because he was, you know, back in time. But not only does Noah get saved in his soul, in his being through Jesus, but so too very literally and concretely for us earthbound humans, Noah gets saved when the rest of the world is flooded and destroyed. And this is the kind of outsider that we want to be. Unlike Adam and Eve, who became outsiders from God, Noah lived as an outsider from society 
And as a result, he lives profoundly as an insider in God's family. Now we can take courage from our brother Noah. We can take courage from our brother Noah. I don't know, maybe he was a really bold guy anyways. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think he was all that bold because when he is caught naked by his sons, he gets pretty upset about it. And if you're really, really bold, then maybe you don't care whether you're caught naked, being drunk and all that stuff. But I don't know. Maybe he was really bold or maybe he wasn't. Regardless, he was obedient in a big thing. And so you and I can take courage from that. You and I can take courage from that. Let us be inspired by Noah. Just like we can be inspired by Christians in the early church being persecuted by the church of Rome. Or just like we can be inspired by Christians living in the Middle East or living in all kinds of other places in the world where Christianity is really truly persecuted. Let us take courage and be that kind of outsider. Brothers and sisters, you may notice, you should notice, that Jesus was also this kind of outsider. Right? Jesus did everything, the scriptures tell us, in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. Jesus himself testifies that he only does what the Father tells him to do. This is another way in which Jesus exemplifies for us what it means to be truly human. Noah did it a bit, I mean a big bit, a really big bit, a boat bit. You know, Jesus did it all the way, all the time. This is what we were made to do too. Let us pray. Father in heaven, though there are some controversies and difficulties in in interpreting this story about Noah and the flood and the wickedness of humanity and the Nephilim and all that stuff, we praise you that the point is quite clear. The point is quite clear that all of humanity was corrupt beyond corrupt. But that Noah, by your grace, was a faithful servant to you. That he obeyed you in this huge undertaking and that you saved him. Father, we can see We can see in Noah the echo, the foreshadowing of your son Jesus who obeyed you in everything, even up to and including giving up his life for us. Oh God, whether we live or whether we die, whether we are considered weird by this world or whether we are loved by this world, 
Let us be faithful to you above all. Let us obey you above all. Lord, we know that that will more than likely make us pretty weird in the eyes of the world. But may we always remember that being that kind of outsider is blessed and holy. Lord, help us. Help us to be the Noah kind of weird. To be the Jesus kind of strange. To live our lives in obedience to you. Help us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and by his strength alone, amen.